Hello, Nathan. Hello, Trevor. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of We Need to Talk About Movies podcast. And today, we need to talk about the 1975 espionage spy thriller, The Iger Sanction, starring Clint Eastwood and George Kennedy, directed by Clint of the Eastwood. So, this is your choice this week, Nathan, isn't it? It is my choice this week, and I have to be honest, um, I didn't, I haven't seen this film before, didn't even know it existed, and it was a film that my father and I were talking about, and he suggested to me, and I was like, do you know what, I want to watch it, and I needed, I didn't need a reason, I didn't need to suggest it for this, but I thought, do you know what, let's do it, let's watch it, let's review it, let's see how it goes. Yeah, so that's what we've done, isn't it? That is exactly what we've done. Done exactly that. It might be quite a good film for our listener base, so you know that most of them have come over from a hiking uh, channel that we run on YouTube. <laughs> I think that might have been sort of one of the reasons why my dad thought it was a good idea to suggest. Yeah. And actually, the chap that got me sort of into hiking, he, he'd mentioned this film and said it was one of his favourite films. Right, okay. So, yeah, I, I'd always wanted to see it. And I love the Iger. I just, I would love to cast my eyes upon the Eiger. It is a terrifying, daunting-looking mountain, isn't it? What a beast! Yeah, and it's um, got such a formidable reputation as well, isn't it? Oh, it has, yeah, yeah. Because actually, um, the film North Face, which is all about the Eiger and the time that the two German lads try and conquer it, isn't it? Um, Tony Kurtz, yeah, true story. That's actually on my list of films. Right. Okay, but. You've pipped me to the post. Maybe one day we'll discuss North Face. But for now, we're going to discuss the Iger Sanction. But before we get on with that, Naif, I'm going to have a look through previous comments and shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah man, that's good. This Now would be the time to do it. I mean, if we were going to have some sort of uh, format for the show, then I guess now would be the time Yeah, to do, to do that sort of thing. Exactly. So last week, uh, we had Boogie Nights. Right. Sorry, everyone, we didn't. It was Jaws of Revenge, but <laughs> you know how this goes. At the point we're recording this, the last one to go out was Boogie Nights. And we had a couple of people uh, over on our Summit on Nothing YouTube channel, because I share it on there. Yeah. We had some comments on there, actually, on the post. Ever. So we had Phil Clark said, it's definitely half a box of tissues job. Very sad, but the general content, very thought-provoking. Uh, among Shakespeare's finest works, if art, plenty of tits in it as well, he said. Uh, Ryan in the Wild said, ah, oh, great film, not seen it in ages. Still Squeezing said, it's a good flick. Angelo Bianco said, good movie. And Nathan Smith said, ah, oh, Dirk Diggler. So that was the comments we had for that. A lot of love for Boogie Nights. A lot of love for Boogie Nights. And then I thought, because we're talking about a film about mountains this week, we're talking about the Iger Sanction. Yeah. So I've just put a picture up on our Facebook page, and which is facebook.com. We need to talk about movies podcast in case anyone would like to go over there and get involved in the chit chat that we do try and do most weeks. And I said, this week's podcast, we will discuss a film with a mountain in it. So what's your favourite film with a mountain in um, Ollie Parry Jones said The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Yes, good. The modern one with Ben Stiller. Yeah. I've not seen the original. Chris Benton said Cliffhanger weren't too bad. Mm. Um, Dean Harvey, Touching the Void. That's uh, 
Joe Simpson, isn't it? The documentary. Yeah, is that the one um, where Matey Boy falls into the void and then he breaks his leg and he spends several days crawling out? Yeah. Yeah, I have seen that. That is His mate no- cuts him off, doesn't he? Sorry? He was hanging off his mate, wasn't he? And his mate cut, cut- him loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That was, God, that was gripping. But sort of knowing it's a true story, it's horrifying at the same time, wasn't it? Yeah. There's actually another film that Joe Simpson done all about the Iger. Right. Um, I think it's called The Beckoning Silence. And that's a really good film as well, a documentary, where him and his him and his same mate go up the Iger, do the north face of the Iger, yeah. and discuss to, uh, Tony Kurtz and that in there. But I'm sure we'll talk more about Tony Kurtz later because it's quite an important part of the history of the Iger, isn't it? Right, yeah. Um, Jason Paris said, Flash Gordon. Um, I said, I'll take your word for it, Jason, because I can't remember much about Flash Gordon. It could have been a mountain in it. I can't remember. To be honest, I mean, depending on your definition or how you're saying it, there's quite a lot of mountain going on in um, Boogie Nights. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Kristen Mitchell said, more of a documentary, but 180 degrees south is cracking. Not heard of that one, have you? No, I haven't, no. No. What What about uh, Maru Trev? Oh, that's a great mountain climbing documentary isn't it i seem to remember us watching quite a few of these uh sort of mountain film stroke documentaries uh in the very early days of summit or nothing yes we did didn't we We used to get together and watch a film before we'd go and climb high willies (laughs) i think uh i think north face was enough to put me off the idea of ever wanting to go serious mountain climbing ever in my life yeah no north face is harrowing isn't it yeah but um so that was our correspondence. Nathan. Can I can I just ask a question? Yeah. Have we received any emails? We have received emails, but they're for suggestions for films. Right, okay. To watch in future. Um Well it does it does work though. The email does work. The the email is working, yeah, and um we've heard off of Carl Maple Toft and Torren Burid. And they've both suggested two films. Our film suggestion list now, Nath, is up to eight. And next week, it will be one of your listeners, one of the listeners' choices. So we've got eight to choose from at the moment. Oh, that's cool. Nice selection. It's good. Nice selection. There is a nice selection. So we'll discuss that after this show. Cool. And then you'll have to find out next week what we're going to watch. Exciting. Nath. Yes. Have you seen anything else this week? Yes. Yep. I watched... What? Yesterday on Netflix. All right. What did you make of that? Uh, It's all right. Wasn't wasn't quite what i was expecting yeah um yeah it was just a feel-good film really wasn't it <laughs> yeah it was all right wasn't it it was bit cheesy bit bit crap <laughs> yeah i think it's um you know when you're you're making dinner right and you haven't got a lot of anything else so you just make more potato just because it's a cheap filler yeah this is like the potato on netflix yeah <laughs> You know what I mean? Fair enough. That's that's what it felt like. That's my analogy. That's what I'm going with. All right. I, I dig you. I dig yeah. you, baby. Yeah. I watch, I went to the film. I, I went to the cinema to watch a film, Nafe. Did you? Yeah. And what did you watch? Black Widow. Oh, right. Okay. The new Marvel took. Cohen wanted to go and watch it. And you know, um, like when you're having dinner and you're like, 
you just have potatoes, more filler. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what Black Widow felt a bit like. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There's nothing new, is there? There's nothing new in all these Marvel films anymore. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah, I know. They've done all the the big ones and I can't, I don't know. I watched that and I was just sort of like, well, we know she's not going to die because she dies later on. Yeah. I was just watching the action sequences thinking they just went on a bit. The, the jokes was pretty thin, pretty lame this time. It wasn't the best. I'm, I feel like I'm bored to death of Marvel now. Superhero films need to just move aside for a second and let something else come in, you know? Yeah, the thing is, they just, you know, it was such a long time in the making building up to Endgame. I mean, I got bored to the point where I didn't even watch Captain Marvel. I still haven't watched Captain Marvel, you know? Yeah. And uh, there's a lot in them. I just, I'm done with it. Like, you know what I mean? I can't be bored to take in any more information because it doesn't feel like it will be going anywhere now. No, uh, I must admit, I watched Captain Marvel because we, I was late coming to the Marvel films and I only watched it because I liked Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes, yep. And Ant-Man, I enjoyed, you know, the odd few I'd watched. And then my son wanted to watch the see you know, all of them. So we watched them in order that they're supposed to take place. And I think yeah. the first one you watch is Captain Marvel. Right, okay. So that was one of the first ones I watched. But yeah, I don't know. Even watching them all in order like that, there's some of them that stand out. Like I say, Ant-Man, I really liked Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, that was brilliant. Four Ragnarok. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the new four. Because it's, uh, again, it's... Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi, yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but apart from that, I'm not really... I'm done, you know? Yeah, it's... They all seem to have the same... Oh, he's a good guy helping them out at the beginning, but he's going to be the bad guy at the end. And the bad guy is going to end up allying with them at the end. You know, so yeah. they hit the same marks all the way through. Do you know what I mean? It's been done, isn't it? It's been done a few times now, isn't it? One or two. One or two, boy. I'm uh, well, anything else other than that, Triff, did you watch? I did watch something else, actually. After watching Jaws Revenge last week, and on Saturday night, I was sort of like, what should I do tonight? I watched Jaws 3. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Yeah, no good. Oh, I can't wait to discuss that now. I don't know why I watched it before we discussed it. Anyway, I think we've discussed enough other things. Shall we talk about... The Iger Sanction. Let's talk about the Iger Sanction. So, a little bit of a link to last week's podcast, Jaws, The Revenge. Right, yeah. It's very tenuous. Jaws, The Revenge was a sequel to 1975 film Jaws. So, the same year as Jaws come out. But there's more of a link than that. Uh, This film was produced by Universal Studios uh, producers Zanuck Brown, who also produced Jaws. Just thought I'd let you know that. I noticed their names at the beginning of the credits. So I was like, oh, that's them. They also done The Sting. It was a good film. Have you ever seen The Sting? I don't know if I have. Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Uh, Quint out of Jaws, Robert Shaw, is like the criminal there. And they set up this operation to sting him out of money. Right, okay. But anyway, that's The Sting. Let's talk about the eye consumption. <laughs> <laughs> now, after watching the film, I came to the conclusion... If somebody asked me to describe the film from my current position, my age, the era that I grew up in, yeah, and and what I've seen on on the big screen, if you like, uh, I would have to describe it as 
James Bond meets Indiana Jones meets Carry On Camping. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd have said James Bond meets Indiana Jones to a sense that it's a bit more serious than Indiana Jones. Yeah. A bit more mature, not mature as such, but a bit more gritty than James Bond, isn't it? It's a bit more realistic than James Bond. There aren't any yeah. crazy laser guns or gadgets. No, no. Um, but who else did I? I'm sure I put something like that down. Oh, yeah, I did. James Bond meets Indiana Jones meets Dirty Harry, I put. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Because he's a bit, old, he's a ruthless old bugger, isn't he, Clint, in this? He, he is ruthless in this, but also there are moments where they're at, uh, where they've gone to the desert to for him to train to climb the Eiger, and they turn up, and it is like, oh my god, it's like carry on camping, this weird campsite with loads of women walking around in bikinis, and then this really like camp gay spy turns up with a dog <laughs> called Faggot, and I'm just like. What, what the fuck? This can't be serious. Is that? Is this real? Is this actually yeah. part of the same film? Yeah, it, I thought that was strange having that homosexual villain, and they're just—it's just all like innuendo. Yeah, real homosexual innuendos, and because if you think about it, it the film was just over two hours long. Yeah, right. Is I that think right? it was like two hours and quarter, two hours and a quarter hours or something, wasn't it? It was quite quite a long film. It's quite a decent length, and um, if you remove all of those scenes. It, it, it neither takes anything away from the film, yeah. but leaving them in adds nothing to it the film. It is strange, isn't it? Yeah, and there was some, and it might have just been the style of filming at the time, but some of the sort of montage scenes were unnecessarily long. <laughs> did, you, did you get that? I mean, there were points like when he was training and running up the mountain with that girl, George. Yeah. And it was just like, we get it now. <laughs> yeah, you're you getting know? slightly better every day. Yeah. Yeah. And then the uh, the driving through the desert with the the gay spy. Uh, what was the gay spy called? Um, Miles. Uh, Miles Mello. Yeah, yeah. Played by who's who's he played him? Jack Jack Cassidy. Jack Cassidy. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's just like uh, you know, just a driving through the desert where you keep looking back at the speedo to see how many miles he's driven. It's just like it's. <laughs> You know, you're not building suspense. What you're building is boredom. Yeah. But it, like I say, it might just be the style of filming at the time. You know it's what I mean? It was, days, wasn't it? It's very, it, there's, there's nothing groundbreaking about the, the general build-up of the film. It's very um, conservative, I'd say. No, yeah. But it did seem to be mostly filmed on location. Yeah. Which... Like if you watch the old James Bond films when he's driving in the car, uh, you can tell it's back screen. like projection behind. Yeah, yeah. And it just looks you know, just looks wrong. Whereas this it felt like it was filmed on location. Well, and it was, and Clint Eastwood done all his own stunts in this knife. Yeah, I know. Apparently the scene in the desert where they climb the tomahawk, that was one of the last time the last legal climbs That's of the right, tomahawk. Yeah. Of the tomahawk, and they had to take all the pittons down on the way down, remove everyone else's pittons that had been left there over the years. Yeah, yeah, but it was um, when you see them at the top, it's an ama- amazing shot, isn't it? Yeah, for the time as well. Like, you know, to think, you know, you've just got Clint and um, George Kennedy stood George, up there yeah. on their own. Do you think George Kennedy also climbed up it, or do you think no chance? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what I was thinking. George Kennedy, if you can't remember who he is or you don't know who he is, he's um, Frank Drebin's boss, isn't he, in um, Police Squad, the Naked Gun. Of course he is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you not recognise him from that? I did recognise him, but I was like, what? Well, where do I know this guy from? <laughs> it, you know, I can remember seeing him in stuff when I was a lot younger, but... Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. his mate in Police Squad. Yeah. He... <laughs> He also looks like if he grew a little goatee, he could be um, Colonel Saunders. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, he could. Yeah, the Colonel Saunders. The Colonel Saunders. Uh, George Kennedy's character in this film, Ben Bowman. So he sort of trains, what's his face, didn't it, Clint? Jonathan Hemlock. No, named after a poison, isn't it? Sorry, Dr. Jonathan Hemlock. But you almost don't believe his character. It's like the bit where they're running up the mountain when he's first takes Clint up to train him. Yeah. And they're almost skipping, aren't they? <laughs> it's so weird watching them running up. And Clint, like, dressed in double denim to go running across yeah, the Badland yeah. Mountains. I think I'm not entirely sure he knew like, what he was in for, because as the days progressed, he seemed to get more and more serious with his clothing choice, you know. Yeah. Thank, thanks to that really lengthy, <laughs> accurately detailed montage. So he basically, yeah, he's got to follow that girl. Um George, yeah, Brenda Venus plays George, and she's like some Native American, isn't she? And uh, yeah, uh, there's a scene in it where he's chasing her, and um, doesn't he say "screw Marlon Brando"? <laughs> because I think when Marlon Brando won his Oscar for The Godfather, right, he sent he sent a Native American woman up to retrieve his Oscar. <laughs> Uh, in protest against the Americans, like exploitation of the the Native Americans. See, I I didn't pick up on that. Um, but yeah, the the scenery was amazing. It does look great, and I did love the car chase where Clint is driving through the desert, and then Miles and his bodyguard are chasing behind. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a big long shot, a wide shot in it from a distance, like a big panorama of the, the Badlands and the car two cars speeding through really close together. Yeah. I did think that some great shots and interesting shots because it wasn't all sort of close up shots of the chase. It was interesting to sort of to make the most of that panorama, I thought. You know how I love a panorama, Nath. Oh, I know you love a panorama, mate. I love a landscape, boy. But it was, you know, there were some beautiful locations and beautiful scenery in it. I didn't have any expectations about it at all, apart from the fact that, you know, I've seen it had the Iger in the title and the, and the cover is Clint Eastwood clearly dressed to be climbing, doing some sort of alpine climbing, you know? Yeah. And um, when you get introduced to his character, it's the beginning bit of the film that just doesn't fit with me. You know what I mean? It's It felt like a really long-winded, unnecessary build-up to get Clint Eastwood on a mountain. Yeah, it did. I mean, I think it's like an hour and ten minutes before we even get to the Eiger. And I had nowhere to watch it. The kids had all taken over the tellies downstairs. Um, everyone was busy in the house, and I thought, oh, I've got to watch this now. And I took it up to bed, and I watched it in bed. And uh, I was watching it and watching it, waiting for, God, when's he going to get to the Eiger? An hour and 20 minutes, he gets to the Eiger. Uh, the next thing you know, I woke up and the credits was on. I slept through the entire <laughs> Eiger bit. <laughs> as soon as he got there, I 
passed, I fell asleep. So uh. I had to watch the end again later that night. So I did watch it in two halves this time. Yeah, you probably, that's probably how it should be watched. Probably watch the last bit, enjoy it, and then if you can be bothered, watch the first <laughs> half. Because the very opening scene of the film, you got the bloke who collects the microfilm. Yeah. Dressed just like a spy, you know. <laughs> He's got the the trilby and the fucking the trench coat, and you just think you don't look inconspicuous. You look like you're dressing like a spy. No one else is wearing that. No, I mean, it, <laughs> you look like uh, Inspector Clouseau, didn't he? If you was looking for a spy, there's going to be someone sat there, and they're going to point at him and go, "Him, yeah. he's a spy." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but that was uh, Clint Eastwood's mate, wasn't it? I can't remember. Was it Meyer? I can't remember who they said he was now. Yeah. He's got a very short part in the film. Yeah, role, he's, he? he's in it and then he's killed, uh, and that's how they drag Clint back in, isn't it? Yeah. But he's. Uh, well, first of all, they try bribing him, don't they? Because he's a teacher, isn't he? An arts teacher and an art collector, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. When we meet him. And this is, this is the. This, for me, is the um, Indiana Jones part. Like, you know, the college professor. That's you know fancied by his female students and sort of, but has this completely alter ego sort of different life outside of it, and it's just like yeah, you know, I don't know if it influenced the sort of ideas behind Indiana Jones at all, but it could well have done. Yeah, it's you know seeing Clint sort of you know dismiss the female student who's trying to find an easy way to to maintain her B average, and you say, all right, okay, so he's got. Got strong morals. That's good. Lesser men would have caved. Yeah, but then he goes. She goes. I'll do absolutely anything to get good grades. And he goes anything. She goes anything. He goes. Then go home and study that little ass off. And then as he goes out the door, he slaps her ass and then goes, "Don't study all of it off." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he still had to get a grope. Yeah, he couldn't just let her go out the but door. But that's um. Carry on camping for you, isn't it? Yeah. These are all the things that I seen watching the film. And uh, <laughs> he goes, you know, he goes back in his office. Does he go back in his office or he goes through to his office and then there's that guy there, isn't there? That What's his name? Oh, Pope. Pope, yeah. Who's working for the agency that have sent for... Because although he's a teacher, Jonathan Hemlock, Clint Eastwood's character, is a uh, a retired assassin isn't it? Yeah. Which is what the sanctions refer to in the title. Yeah. The sanction being the hit. Yeah. And this Pope turns up. He's not the Pope. No. That's his name. Trying to convince him to come. They have a bit of a, a kerfuffle, don't they? Yeah. Where Clint teaches him a lesson. Yeah. Which is what you want from your hero. You know, you want him to be a tough man, don't you? Yeah. Um, this, this scene is fine. Totally acceptable. The only point at which it falls down for me is uh, when he says he's dragon wants to see you. Like, oh, brilliant, dragon. Yeah. <laughs> really? Is, is that the name we're going with? Yeah, I think in the book, I've read a fact. Let me find a fact about it, Nathan. That's what it is, yeah. His name, in the novel, he's called Euasis Dragon. Euasis Dragon. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a joke, apparently. <laughs> Um, okay. So, yeah, because this is based on a book by someone called Trevanian. And he wrote several novels under the pen name Trevanian in a wide variety of genres. But this is obviously his James Bond, really, isn't it? He's obviously influenced by James Bond, which was massive at the time, I should think. Yeah. So 
there is similarities. It is a covert operation. And I didn't mind the character of Dragon. He's like an albino, isn't he? And he's got to sit under a heat, a, a sun lamp. Yeah. And he can't be exposed to any daylight. I love the idea of characters that are so powerful, yet so weak. Yeah, yeah, that juxtaposition. Like- uh, one of the best that I always remember was Christopher Walken in Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, which I don't, I didn't like the film, but Christopher Walken just brilliant in that. And I think Steve Buscemi's in that as well as like a, a hitman who's coming for him, and he was really good in it as well. And at that point, you've only seen him as like scrawny little characters. And so he was a juxtaposition as well. Worked really well, those two characters. But the rest of the film was a bit bit shit. Bit of a poor man's Tarantino film, you know what I mean? Can't say I've ever seen it, mate, if I'm honest. No, no, it's all right. What's it called? Things to Things to do in Denver when you're dead. Right, I'll have to look out for that. Yeah, look out for it. But don't get your hopes up. Um, And then you had... Uh, one of my favourites as well is Gary Oldman in Hannibal as Mason Verger. It's like really rich bloke, but he's all mutated and he's in a wheelchair. Right. Hannibal Lecter got him high and then got him to cut his own face off. Yes, yes, yes. I've seen that. Yeah, and he's uh, he actually looks like um, Dick Zanuck, the producer of Jaws. Whenever I see him, I think he looks like Mason Verger. <laughs> Google him. Right. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he looks like... Uh... Hang on, I'm just Googling Mason Verger now. <laughs> yeah, and then put them together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's the same person, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Same person. <laughs> I'm horrible, and I? Uh, but, yeah, that was another good villain. Can you think of any villains, Nafe, that were really weak, but scary? Yeah. Um, what did we watch? We watched a film... Who, me and you? Oh, that's right. We were watching um, Sixth Sense, weren't we? And we were talking about... Oh, yeah. Um, ah, I know what you're going to say. M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong. Yeah. Mr. Glass. Samuel Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Super fragile. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, the dragon in this, he's, like we say, he's a bit bit of a weak villain. But... Is he... Is he even... Completely controlling, isn't he? Is he really a villain? Well, he works for the government, doesn't he? So it's... He's sort of on both sides, isn't he? Yeah, he's... So to speak. He's heartless and he know, he's ruthless to get what he wants and he threatens Clint Eastwood with all his... Uh, stealing his paintings to get him over. He, I'll tell you who he reminded me of. Baron Greenback from uh, Danger Mouse. <laughs> Baron Greenback. I know... Yeah, he spoke like him. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Thought... <laughs> Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I remember him. But yeah, he, so he sort of, Clint Eastwood, they, that's how they get him over. They say, I'll tell you what, there's a new uh, painting on the black market that you want. And he's like, ah, oh, because he's a big art collector. So that's how they convince him to do the job. They'll give him that painting, isn't it? Yes, yes. But then he's like, what if I don't do it or something? And then they're like, oh, well, we'll tell the authorities all about your yeah. collection yeah. and where you've got them. How, you know? how does a uh, lowly college professor on his income afford these, you know, multi-million pound paintings or whatever? Yeah, they're all missing, I suppose, aren't they? If they're on the black market, yeah, they must have all been stolen at some time. 
but then Clint, he ain't having none of that. And he's, he sort of puts in his end of the bargain again, right? I'll do it, but I want paying and I want double and I want sort of signed confirmation, all the proper documents to say that I own these papers and how I got them. And yeah, from the IRS, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's switched on. I, I really enjoy, uh, I think maybe like it needed refinement, but you know, it works, but I love the idea and you see it in several films of the hitman being someone that regards himself as a, as a intellectual, a man of taste and a man of refinement and live in that sort of isolated, um, organized, clean life. Yeah. And, uh, I'd, I'd liked that about Clint's character, about that Jonathan, Jonathan Hemlock, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I love the fact that he's not, particularly an easy person to outwit no and that's a very bond like sort of feature isn't it yeah and i mean bond is from the higher echelons of society isn't he, he was schooled in eton and you know when, especially reading the books which i i've read all the bond books or the uh, fleming ones anyway and he's very up on all his sort of the details of refinement you know and the finery yeah. and the, the finer points of life and i love all that in the books so again, yeah, they've sort of taken from that, haven't they? But this is more cloak and dagger than sort of the the MI five setup, isn't it? You know, yeah, that feels more like a business where this feels more like only you and me know about this. You know, as he's called in there, it's all very hush hush, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, it it drives the plot on to the point where there are these two assassins. They know who one of them is. And uh, Clint Clint agrees to kill one of them, doesn't he? Yeah. So, and uh, it's a very quick affair, isn't it? Yeah. The only notable part in my mind that stands <laughs> out of the... <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Where he's got the little hat on. <laughs> and he's like, again, he puts on this really camp voice, doesn't he? And he's like, I've got to deliver for you. <laughs> really weird I isn't it I can't remember what was in the box but the way he said it it just like oh my god it freaked me out a little bit I was like is that, <laughs> is, that is that Clint Eastwood it can't be Clint Eastwood yeah but yeah yeah very homophobic film wasn't it yeah it wasn't it was not sort of what you consider to be PC today is it at all <laughs> not at all no but a lot of it like there's no need for it no there was, is there there was absolutely no why difference. have a gay character in it if he's going to be the villain and you're all going to be the butt of all the jokes and why when you're pretending to be a delivery man why put on a, a gay voice about it you know a real camp sort of are you being served <laughs> <laughs> voice yeah it's very weird yeah i i don't think i will ever forget it it's etched into my retinas <laughs> i don't think i'm going to be able to watch gran torino in the same way ever again no <laughs> i know it's a bit some of this like i think clint is pretty cool and it's cool that he does his own stunts he's a bit of the tom cruise of his day isn't he you know yeah yeah and some of the stunts are amazing but sometimes i watch him and i just i don't know it's almost cringy watching him do some of the stuff that he does in this film it's not almost, it is cringy. It is cringy, yeah. And you just think, you're a grown man, Clint. Yeah, at, what for, are you doing? at 45. Come on, At 45, 35. They say in the film, didn't they? He's 35. Yeah. <laughs> when was Clint born? Because this was 1975. So he would have had to have been born in 1930? Ni- yeah, 1930. 
Yeah, thirty first of May, nineteen thirty. Yeah, there you go. He was forty five. Yeah. Well, anyway, he heads back, doesn't he? After doing the killing. Yeah. And uh, he meets a delightful young lady. Oh, the air stewardess, Jemima Brown. Who I thought was Jem- quite fanciable. Yeah. You liked a bit of Jemima Brown. Yeah. Again, you know, she, it's it's a bit more favourable to her being a sort of ethnic uh, American character that she plays. You know, I suppose this is around the time of all the black exploitation films. So I think I did see that she was in Shaft in Africa, uh, whether that was before or after. But there's a bit more favourable to her. She was a good character, even though she's turns out she's used by C2, the organisation, to... Um, con the money out of him isn't it yeah yeah uh, to get him to go on the second job but she's of good moral fiber she didn't enjoy sort of using clint and she's sort of on his side isn't she yeah yeah you know she um she feels she's misled into believing that what she's doing she's doing for the right reasons yeah but she still feels bad about it something feels off to her and as the film digresses she sort of speaks to that pope doesn't she and finds out that you know, this so the microfilm supposedly had a formula for a virus, didn't it? Yeah. Is that what it was? And um they didn't want this it's virus got form- into the wrong hands. Yeah. But it turns out that it was all a setup from the start. It was a false virus. Uh but to make it look real, um they're trying to just as a ruse, they're assassinating the people that that stole the virus. But you don't find this out until Clint's... It's too late and Clint's already up on the Eiger, so a little way off yet, but... Yeah. But, yeah, so anyway, she um, eventually sort of... You come round to the fact that she is just there to support Clint and it's nothing to do with the agency anymore. No. But, yeah, I, I, I you know, I quite liked her character. I thought it was... It needed something in there to... Um, because, basically... Her main, the main drive for her is is to steal back the money that Clint's just been paid and his IRS note excusing his paintings, isn't it? Yeah. So then he's got to go back to them. He goes back to get his money, and that's when they say, "Right, we need you to do this now. Use your skills as a mountaineer to go up the north face of the Eiger." Um, but there's the scene where he confronts Jemima Brown. Yeah. And I don't know if you notice, Nate. There's a, a stray eyebrow. He's got hanging off his, it's driving me nuts watching this scene. And there's this like one eyebrow that <laughs> yeah. fucking hangs out like two inches of, uh, high, longer than the rest. Yeah, oh my yeah, God. Yeah. Just get rid of that fucking eyebrow. Just pick that <laughs> fucking eyebrow. <laughs> it was, it was doing my head. But, oh, um, mate, I didn't pick up on it, if I'm honest. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't pick it. No one picked it. No, no one else did. That's the problem. But then it does eventually cut to a different angle and it's gone. So, oh God. But yeah, so then he goes back and uh, the dragon says, we know one of the killers is attempting to climb the Eiger. We want you to go climb the Eiger. Yeah. And Clint's had history with the Eiger. He's been there twice as he tried to climb it. Yeah, and apparently twice it tried to kill him. Which, yeah, it's understandable. It is a beast of a mountain, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know Eiger? Is it German for ogre? I think that's where the title comes from. It's the ogre. Right, okay. I can quite understand. Um, we were talking about other films that it had been in earlier, weren't we? Um, obviously. Um, North Face. North Face and The Beckoning Silence. But I always remember it as well. It's in Gran Turismo, isn't it? The game. 
Right, is it? There's the Grindelwald routes. Oh, right, yeah. I'm with and you. you're driving around and the Eigers are in the background there. I, I used to love doing those levels <laughs> just to see the Eiger. But I'd, and then I watched um, Paul Thomas Anderson, director of Boogie Nights, his latest film and the last film that um, Daniel Day-Lewis done before he retired acting was a film called The, F- the Phantom Fred. And there's a scene in there where they're having a party in this hotel where everyone stays to watch the mountain climbers underneath the Eiger. Yeah, yeah. So it was in that as well recently. And I said, to me and my wife were watching it. I was like, oh, it's the Eiger. And I was like, oh, it's not the Eiger. I was like, it is the Eiger. She goes, oh, you always do this. <laughs> you always say you, you see this and that's it. I was like, it's the Eiger. I know what the Eiger looks like. And then I recognised the hotel as well because it's the same hotel as in the North Face. Yeah. Sure enough, yeah. I was right. It was the Eiger. How did uh, how did your wife take that? She just pretended she didn't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. But, uh, yeah, this is where the film now starts to sort of step up a gear, isn't it, now? He's got the train and he's got the mission, so now he's got to get in shape. That's when he goes to see George Kennedy. Uh, the music as well. George John Williams done the soundtrack for this. I did read that, yeah. It wasn't his best soundtrack. It didn't leap out at me. No, it didn't really stand out. But yeah, we, I mean, we've discussed most of it. The scenes of him in the training, chasing... George. George. Who's running around in some really tiny denim hot pants with long legs and long socks. Yeah, and a tight tight chesty top. Yeah. Brenda Venus, if anyone's listening, well worth a Google. <laughs> um, and then he uh, he gets to the bottom when she's training him through that montage that you loved so much. Yeah. And then she climbs up the top of the face, doesn't she? This rock face. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm not going up there. And then she, she takes off her top, gets her chest out, doesn't she? And then he's straight up there and she's gone. She's a tease. Yeah. He wasn't overly impressed by that, was he? No, he wasn't. Going back to what I said earlier about how he's a tough man to outwit and then he gets outwitted by a pair of tits. <laughs> he does. He does, mate. Yeah, that's the his Achilles heel, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of these, uh, spy sort of hitmen, you know, it is always a pretty face that is their Achilles heel. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. None more so than James Bond, to be honest. Yeah. And in the books of James Bond, he's always smitten with these women. Like, I think it's like Ian Fleming's way of like saying, right, he's, he's, we've got a different love interest in this. And he sort of, the first couple of chapters, he always discusses what's happened to the previous woman. Right, yeah. And James Bond is always really pining after them. He's always useless in love. It's a lot different than the films. He's not so, like, sort of, you know, not so easy come, easy go. He's always pining after these women. And actually, in the book of Moonraker, he spends the whole book trying to pull this woman and she has none of it she's just not interested turns him down through the whole book can't imagine that happening to sean connery (laughs) no but yeah it's quite interesting reading the books we have to do something about james bond just so i can geek out you know yeah i mean i'll i'll happily participate in a uh in a podcast where i sit there and go oh really no way i never knew that Whilst you waffle on about James Bond for an hour and a half. 
<laughs> All right, we'll do it. Brilliant. It's a date. Uh, not entirely <laughs> yeah. sure you've got the sarcasm in that, but hey, you know, whatever. But this George, again, like she is his weakness anyway. Uh, yeah. She comes back later on, doesn't she? Strips off in his room and then they get it on. And then she tries to inject him with some poison or something, doesn't she? And she's been hoodwinked by Miles to yeah. sort of jump in on the act and completely... Uh, to try, well, they, they suspect in the film, the plot, basically, they suspect that they were trying to drug um, Clint to a point where he was a bit spaced out so that Miles could come in and finish the job probably with some sort of um, set up. Phallic. Of an, <laughs> <laughs> some phallic-shaped object. <laughs> Blunt trauma to the back of the throat with some phallic-shaped object. <laughs> Choked. Choked to death. Um, no, so like they suspect that he was probably going to give him some sort of overdose or something and, and sort of to kill him off because basically uh, Miles um, betrayed Clint Eastwood or Jonathan Hemlock when they were younger or earlier on in his career. Yeah. And uh, he's always suspected that Hemlock is uh, around the corner just waiting or looking for an excuse to kill him. And it just so happens that now he turns up to try and settle the score by offering him a piece of information um, that could help uh, prevent him from having to climb the Eiger, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which seems a bit odd because if Miles knew that it was George, surely he must have known that it was uh, that if yeah, if Miles knew that it was Ben Bowman played by George Kennedy, then surely he must have known that he was at his his ranch. Yeah, it's a lot of it doesn't sort of make sense, and I mean, you suspect the twist from the beginning. I did. Because you haven't met anyone else. Yeah. You know, you always get all your characters in early enough, don't you? you Do know? you know what? I didn't think there was going to be a twist. I honestly straight up thought it was going to be one of the Mountaineers. Yeah. And I was trying to work out which one of the Mountaineers it was. Yeah, they set it up. When you're there, they set it up so it could be, well, you have your suspicions which one, don't you? Yeah. I wasn't overly surprised. No, I mean, when it turned out to be George Kennedy, it was just like, uh <laughs> You know what I mean? It is a twist. And yeah. it did- Maybe we've seen it too much. Maybe at the time it was like, oh, wow, that's happened. Yeah, but- yeah. It, that's the thing. We're going back and looking at a very a very old film from a very modern standpoint, aren't we? Well, yeah, it's nearly 50 years old. I do feel like maybe I'm being a bit harsh on it. Yeah. Some films date better than others, don't they? Yeah. And I mean, I think if we was to watch some of the early James Bond films, we'd have to be quite harsh on some of that as well, you know? Especially the Roger Roger Moore ones. <laughs> I never really liked Roger Moore as a James Bond. No, he was the furthest James Bond from the books. Right. And uh, I was watching the films and reading the books all at the same time. And my favourite James Bond before Daniel Craig, because I do think he's great, was um, Timothy Dalton. Right, yeah. Yeah, closest to the book. He'd done a lot of his own stunts because he wanted to, Get in there, and this is it. Coming back to this film again, which we are talking about, Clint Eastwood doing his own stunts is a, a masterstroke. Really, he's directing the film as well. Yeah, but he said, "I want to do my own stunts because I want people to watch it and go, wow, you know." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can zoom in from a distance. You see him hanging off the face of this mountain, and then zoom in, and you can clearly see it's him. Yeah, on the mountain. And he used to go in disguise into the cinemas when they were playing the film and sit in there and listen to people discussing it 
and coming out afterwards. Yeah. And they said, oh, God, how did they make it look like Clint Eastwood was doing that? And then people would say, special effects. <laughs> he was depressed. He's gutted because he'd gone to all this trouble to do his own stunts and everyone just suspected it was fake, even though it wasn't. Yeah, taking his life in his hands as well, you know what oh, I mean? That stunt at the very end where he has to cut the rope and then they catch him on the other one. And you see the drop. It was actually 4,000 feet up. That's crazy. That cut. Yeah. That is absolutely crazy. I and would not one, want to do one that. chap was actually killed on location, yeah. wasn't he? A British yeah, mountaineer. British, British climber, yeah. David Knowles, 26 years old, hit by, when a boulder fell down on his head. But apparently they, um, they didn't have enough footage or something for the day. So him and another chap said, oh, we'll go out and just get some footage of boulders falling. And then, yeah, one landed and killed him. That's savage. But then Clint was like, well, let's let's call it a day that, you know, this is too dangerous. Yeah. And then all his, the rest of the team, like the other mountaineers who was there on site to help, said, well, no, let's just keep going. We all know the risks. And um, it's a waste of his life if we don't finish this now. You know, he'd have died for nothing. Yeah. So that's their mentality, isn't it? These mountaineers, they know what they're going in for. I mean, that is real mountain as well, isn't it? The Iger. Yeah. To go and start fannying about filming on. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, the, that's the thing that does stand out in the latter part of the film is how everything is actually being done. Yeah. You know, all of the stunts, everything that they're doing, it is actually happening. Yeah, no projection, no, like, filmed in a studio and have in front of a blue screen or nothing. I don't know that it was all filmed on the Iger. I think I read somewhere that they filmed some on other locations uh, yeah. to sort of act as the Iger, but some of the shots still just amazing there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I love that landscape. I remember that watching the the North Face as well. Oh, the North Face portrays it as such a bitter, hostile environment, yeah, isn't it? But just the surrounding mountains and that, just, oh, it's awesome. So, anyway, he heads up the mountain with a hostile team, doesn't he? Yeah. And um, there's a scene in the hotel where they sort of set up the, you know, the thoughts between the team and sort of, how the German, the young German fellow that's leading the team is uh, sort of having an affair with, is it the French climber? Or no, it's the other guy, isn't it? But yeah. I think Freytag is having an affair with Mayer's wife. Freytag's a German, yeah. And, uh, and Freytag's the one I think they're leading us to believe is the bad guy, isn't he? Because he's headstrong. Yeah, that's it. He's trying to rule everything, And she's he? he's having an affair with Montaigne's wife, isn't he? And Montaigne's the older French guy, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, sort of, so there are already hostilities within the team, and Clint's trying to suss them all out and work out who's who and what's what. And he's he's looking for this because supposedly the the killer had a limp, you know, and he's looking for a climber with a limp, isn't he? Yeah, and it's he's still waiting for C two to confirm before the climb goes ahead, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, and then they turn up. Jemima Brown turns up, doesn't she, and says, "Yeah, we can't confirm. You've got to go and do it." So now he's, him and the team are all, they've got to get up, haven't they? Yeah, they've got a small window in the weather and they need to leave immediately. So they sort of have a night and then sort of get on it first thing in the morning, don't they? Yeah. And uh, and they're off. And the thing, 
although this is 1975, the difference in the level of equipment that they're using in compared to the film North Face is just leaps and bounds, isn't it? You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. And it looks very well thought out, very well planned, and the techniques are much safer and more modern. Yeah. And but you do see them traversing, like, swinging, doesn't yeah. they? Yeah. And isn't that, in North Face, that was the first person to do that, was that Hinterhoser, is that his name? And that's called, like, the Hinterhoser Pass or something now, isn't it? The Hinterhoser. Right. Hinter, Hinterstossier? Hinterstossier. Yeah. And it's called, like, the Hinterstossier yes. uh, Traverse. And I'm sure they filmed that at that point, even though they're supposed to be going up a different route, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is to climb up higher and then lower yourself down on the rope so that you can have this pendulum effect to get across onto uh, the next shelf, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I did. You know what? There, once the film hit this point, I did start to see quite a few parallels with North Face. Yeah. And um, obviously the North Face story was occurred long before... Uh, this, this film was set, didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, it was in the, like 1930s, wasn't so it? So whether whether that had been read and was a large... Uh, oh, that, yeah, if you're making a film about the Eiger or even writing a book, as that Trevenian had, you'd know all the history of the Eiger. Yeah. I've read a really good book about the Eiger called White Spider. Right. And it's written by the bloke... Oh, I can't remember what his name is now, but he was like... One of the team that first made it up the uh, the north face of the Eiger, uh, Henrik Harrier. Right, well, Henrik Harrier. He's an author. He also wrote something about Tibet. What's the other book? It's quite a famous book. Um, seven years in Tibet. Yeah, seven years yep. in Tibet. But yeah, he was quite young at the time, and when they first went up the Eiger. Right. And this book is all about. It starts off. The first half is all about kurtz going up yeah and then the second half is like him going up so you know anyone attempting to go up the eiger knew the story of kurtz yeah before they went up and i mean it, it, indeed some of the points as i said were named after them yeah as they went up you know yeah and then i'm sure i saw a documentary all about the eiger as well and like the records for People going up the Eiger, the north face of the Eiger. Right. You know, at first it was like take them days. But I think someone's gone up for like three hours up to the top with no ropes. That's mental, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a different grade of climbing these days, isn't it? There's people out there who are just nuts. It's not just that, but it's the equipment has changed as well, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think as well, it'll depend what time of year you go because if like like they say in the film they're going down this gully where the water's flowing and clint quite rightly said you know this would be a lot easier in winter if it was frozen and they were just ice climbing up it you know yeah but you know things do progress and move on and you can see as as well from the type of training that clint's doing in this and that's 1975 and this is after the birth of um modern mountaineering Mm. and um you know, his training, the way he's training physically, the science that people put into training for these specific sports now is just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. The Iger North Face team speed record is four hours and 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, the fastest all three solo ascent was two hours and 47 minutes. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, no. And then Danny Arnold climbed it in two hours, 28 minutes using some aid on the Hinterstossier Traverse. Well, but yeah, the 
two hours and 47, all, all free solo. That's crazy. I've got to be honest with you, mate. If it can be done in an afternoon, then there's no reason why we shouldn't have a look like- at it. <laughs> I wonder if you could walk up the back of it. Oh, mate, it would take us a week. <laughs> but you can go there and you can get, like, trains up and there's, like, windows, isn't there, up through. And I think that's how they filmed a lot on the face, you know. Yeah. They sort of have them climbing just nearby windows. Right, yeah, I'm with to you. To make the filming easier. Yeah, yeah, I'm with yeah, you. Since 1935, more than 70 climbers have died attempting the north face of the Eiger. Jesus. That's a pretty brutal record, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that's, like, a decade on... Everest, though, isn't it? Loads of people dying up on Everest. Yeah, yeah. It's a crazy old hobby, isn't it? Got to be nuts, I think. Got to be a bit nuts to do it. <laughs> yeah, at that level, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, the film definitely picks up once they're up on the Eiger. And it's it's just a... Sh- I know it's the final act, isn't it? It's like, you know, three men on a boat out in Jaws, isn't it? It takes you a long time to get there, but yeah, it's a slower pace to but get But once there, you're there, it? things start unfurling pretty quickly and sort of, you know, the team's sort of making good time. There's lots of awesome shots of them climbing, uh, belaying, leading through. And, you know, the whole time, as the viewer as well, you're engaged in this game, this this thing that Clint's doing where he's trying to, or, or where... Um, this hemlock is trying to discover or discern which which one of the team is the assassin that he's there to kill. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, sort of, whilst some loose rock is falling uh, that's been dislodged by Freytag. Freytag, the German. But it hits Montague, doesn't it? Or Montaigne, sorry, Montague. Hits Montaigne on the yeah, head. Montaigne. There's a yeah. moment where you think that Clint can't hold on and it's going to pull him off the edge of the face and then sort of they manage to, the, the French guy comes down, Mayer comes down and helps him, manages to drag him back. And uh, they pull this Montaigne up. And then he seems all right, but he's a bit bloodied up in the face. And then sort of they, you know, progress on and decide they're going to rest somewhere for the night. And then when they wake up in the morning, Montaigne's dead. Yeah. And that's almost taken straight from the story of the North Face, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. One of their climbers got hit by a falling rock and tried to continue and then died, didn't he? And did they try and get him down, or did they just they just got rid of him, didn't they? No, no, I think they tried to bring him down. That that was their undoing, wasn't it? Because the three able-bodied men crippled themselves by trying to lower a body down, mm. and um, that's where it just all goes horribly wrong, isn't it? Yeah. Or the, the because once of it. I mean you're up that high, that once you're in that weather, he just changes, and they just, yeah yeah. There's that time where the the weather front comes in, and George Kennedy says, "God damn my ass!" There's a weather front coming in. <laughs> And then he sort of tells um, Jemima Jemima that, you know, once that weather comes in, it will just freeze and then that whole wall is just ice. Yeah, and it, it's coming in from the south as well, isn't it? So they've got no way of knowing because it's the other side of the peak. Yeah. So uh, they can't even sort of make an advanced decision on it. And then, yeah, so they wake up in the morning and they find out that Mayor Mayor's passed. And it's like, right, now we need to descend. So they're descending with... Mayor's body, you know, they agree that climbers always bring their dead home. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. So then, um, yeah, they start going down the yeah. mountain, and this is where uh, it starts to unfold pretty quick, isn't it? Yeah, it all goes a bit tits up, boy, doesn't it? i got to be honest, like, the bit towards the end where there's the body slipped or something, and Mayor's gone down, and, and he's slipped, and then Clint's trying to secure another pitten, isn't he, when all of a sudden... You know, Freytag, who's belaying him or holding him from the top, his his bolt 
loosens and he falls and then that's it just all hell breaks loose doesn't it yeah they all next thing you know the body's gone off the cliff mayor's gone off the cliff freytag's gone off the cliff clint's gone off and he's just dangling from some rope and it's just like oh wow christ that unfolded quick didn't it it is almost like you know the writer has copy and pasted <laughs> the the north face story it is a little bit isn't it tony kurtz was left dangling by that rope, by that window. Yeah. They could almost reach him. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. in the real story, they pass him a rope and he puts it through his beeline, but then there's a knot in it or something, in it? And he just can't get it through. Yeah, he just can't get down that little About bit. About six inches out of their reach, isn't he? Yeah, just... And then just died. Yeah, and all that. just froze. Whereas Clint's got George Kennedy... And that's the thing, isn't it? When he turns up, all of a sudden he's limping. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, right, so yeah, you got the limp. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dear. that's it. But Clint's got the energy to notice it whilst he's dangling there off that rope. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Just like... uh, it was a bit of a cop-out having him as the bad guy. and then, But he doesn't have to confront him because he done it. he done it for George because George is Kennedy's daughter. Yeah. After all that. And she just got in with the wrong crowd and he's tried to get her out. So he done, I don't quite get what it was, but basically Dragon and Atta convinced that Clint Eastwood just thought, well, it's one of them, so I'm going to kill them all. And he, they think that he killed them all yeah, on the mountain. And he just and that's how he lets them believe it, doesn't he? Lets them believe it because he's not going to kill his friend. Yeah. So it all ties up in a nice little bow at the end, really, doesn't it? A nice it? little bow at the end, isn't there? The end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. I was glad. It's good to watch. It's interesting. It's been one on, not on the list for the podcast, but it's been one I've meant to watch. I, you know what? I I didn't dislike the film and I didn't not enjoy it. I enjoyed watching the film and I was I didn't find myself sort of reaching for my phone or anything. But no, it is an old film and you have to you have to watch it with that in mind, don't but, you? Yeah. So Nathan. Trevor. Thanks ever so much for choosing this film. Thank you very much for letting me choose the film. No worries. It's uh, good. We're getting into the swing of it. It's, uh, it's moving quite quickly, isn't it? It's back to the listeners again next week. It, and then it's me. <laughs> Can't wait. There's so many films I want to talk about, and I'm only allowed 12 per year. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good fun. So next week, yep. Yeah be a listener's choice if you want to suggest a film then please contact us through facebook there's a pin post at the top of the page facebook.com we need to talk about movies podcast or email us at wnmovietalk at gmail.com and tell us your film why you want us to review it what the film means to you that sort of thing um and also if you are listening to this and you're enjoying the show and on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on Please, if you can, rate us. If you haven't already subscribed, subscribe. But if you can rate us, share us, I don't know, give us some love and try and move us up the ranks. That'll be great. Always helps out. Tell people about us. Anyway, Knife. Trev. I'd like to see you next week. Yeah, I'll see you again. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.